I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Donner. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm getting ready for this interview on my daughter's 15th birthday. To think 15 years ago, I was awaiting her arrival, unknown of the gifts she was bringing me, or really knowing what a mother was going to experience and the miracle of having a baby. The day our children are born are moments we all cherish and remember as blessings from God. The interesting thing is there is no parenting class to take before we all become parents. We just do our best and mostly do what our parents did. When I look back at how I showed up as a parent for my girls, I feel grateful I did a lot of personal development work before they were born, that I felt prepared with the mindset tools and the importance of how much programming is done by the time they are seven years old. It's crazy to think they are 80% programmed by such a young age. If everyone knew that or could have an awareness as they are programming their children, life on the other side of the 80% wouldn't be as much of a struggle. What I mean by that is the self-limiting beliefs we have as humans are only roadblocks we are unaware of and are keeping us from living a magical life. So now that I have 15 years of parenting in the books, I can say I have witnessed watching my two girls being programmed by Richard and I and their surroundings. And I feel blessed and full of gratitude that we had that awareness. Not to say there were those moments I wish I could erase, but for the most part, I can look back and say we did a pretty darn good job. I truly believe there are tools that kids need. And with these tools, they can build internal muscles and a mindset that will set them up for success in every area of life and give them the confidence to show up in their life and have the knowing that they can be, do, or have anything. So now after saying all that, I want to tell you about my Raising Confidence course that I'm so proud of that I created that teaches these kids the principles that I believe in are so important in life. And it's during an eight-week course, one-on-one with me, all personal. And I teach them this formula that includes a morning routine, positive affirmations, a gratitude practice, setting big goals and taking action each day. They learn their core values and really how important it is to have that awareness and so much more. The transformation I have witnessed this past year with my students has been magical. They come hungry and soak up every tool like a sponge. I get calls from parents that say the entire energy has shifted in their house because of their child learning these powerful yet very simple techniques. Can you imagine the confidence these kids will have after these eight weeks with me to go out into the world, take massive inspired action, be a difference maker in others, and live with intention? 
knowing they can be, do, or have anything. I want to give you an example of my daughter, Paige, the one that just turned 15. She discovered rowing, the crew team at high school. She just is a freshman. She discovered it over quarantine because theater and softball and all the activities she was used to doing were shut down. And she thought she would give it a try. She is now, now as a freshman, rowing in a varsity boat at nationals and has a goal to be in the Olympics and win a gold medal. Now, that is what I mean by teaching kids that there is no risk too big. And when you try something new and taking a risk, you may find out that you love it. To see her in this new sport so focused and so determined and realizes the mindset it takes to accomplish something so foreign at the time and now sees herself at the Olympics with a gold medal around her neck. I've had other kids who had goals, but then we added on bigger ideas to the goals and they realize, wow, I would have never thought I could dream that big and would have never known if I didn't try or have the confidence to try. So if you are interested in learning more about this course, please email me at ashleygonner at gmail.com. I will also have a link in the show notes for you to click on to sign up for more information. All I can say is I am so passionate about helping these kids especially in times that we are living in today. I really believe if I had these tools at their age, my life would have had so much more clarity and I would have been so much more confident in the direction I was going. I really feel this should be part of their education because it's that important. Now on to my guest today, Abby Haverman. Oh my gosh, I met Abby Haverman with through our mutual friend, Ellie Molina. You might recognize that name. She's been on this show twice before, and she was also a guest speaker in my group. But Ellie thought that Abby and I would be a great match, and she wanted to connect us. We both have the intention to help and inspire kids and to teach them mindset tools so they can live a more confident and empowered life. But then I started to learn more about Abby, as I love doing my research before we have these incredible conversations. And wow, are you in for a treat? Her story will blow your mind and her knowledge on our minds and the neuroscience and how we create our own reality is so intriguing. We are going to learn so much today. Before I get started with my sweet Abby, my new friend, I want to give you a little bit background on her. So Abby Haverman is a dynamic coach, speaker, writer, and trainer dedicated to facilitating sustainable transformational change. A former private practice psychotherapist, Abby uses leading edge neuroscience to teach people how to rewire their thoughts, adapt, and transcend prior limitations to achieve great heights. She weaves warmth, wit, and authenticity in her top tier coaching and trainings, resulting in exceptional outcomes for individuals and organizations. Abby is a best-selling contributor to the beauty of authenticity featured in Letters to Me, a contributor to Kiplinger Magazine, and is currently working on her memoir. So without further ado, please welcome Abby Haverman to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Ashley. I'm so excited to be here. I just, I love what you do. I think you're doing such great work. Oh, thank you. And I, as I said in the intro before I had you on, I, we have that mutual friend, Ellie Molina, who brought us together and I was listening to her podcast with you on it as I do my 
research and learned so much about you, which I cannot wait to get into. But, you know, I think when I think of her saying, Ashley, you need to meet Abby, you know, and I'm thinking, I wonder why, you know, there's always something and she's so, you know, such a neat person. Yeah. And I looked at, you know, teaching children, you know, how, you know, you have two boys and, you know, I'm doing this, you know, I have my two girls and raising them with the utmost awareness as I possibly can as an older parent to, you know, empower them with tools that I didn't have growing up or even in my twenties, you know, and being lost and having no direction. And, you know, and I think, gosh, you know, here I have met Ellie, she connects me to you. And now I've gone down this whole other (laughs) Abbey road, (laughs) the Abbey road that I just can't wait to get into and let share with these, my listeners, because it's a beautiful story. So inspiring. We all go through, it's like, you know, everyone has their story, but we all can relate to for sure. I mean, I would say most of it, you know, like when you're a woman, especially with your story, I feel so, you know, take me where you want to begin and then we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. I have this passion about working with women around what I believe, as I said on Ellie's uh, podcast as well, is that we are really suffering from this historical, societal and self-perpetuated unconscious sense of unworthiness. Mm -hmm. And that causes us to separate from our intuition quite a bit. And so that ends up being what brings a lot of the things into our lives that we're not desiring. And that's kind of what I write about, what women end up, they don't realize they're coming to me for that. But a lot of times that's really where we end up when we try and figure out, well, okay, you've got, you've created this you know, incredible life. You're very successful. You've got all these things in place. And yet you don't feel on the inside the way that everybody looks at you on the outside. And it turns out that all of these behaviors that got you to this great success are not the ones that are going to get you out of burnout and to where you really want to be in the life that you want to have. So when you connect intuition with the, I mean, where does intuition come from? So they're not listening to their intuition. They're going down this path, like, you know, going, 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 not listening, not listening. I always, you know, I'm so into right now at 52 years old, so focused on, you know, listening to my intuition, you know, and we, we all have that. And it's just such an awareness to have, but explain what you mean by that. Like, why do you see that that is the reason that they're not, um, that they feel unworthy or they're unworthy programming? I think that the unworthy programming you know, all of the things that we are taught, that we need to think of other people first, that we should stay small, that we should not step on people's toes. You know, sometimes I liken it to the Red Riding Hood story, where she knew, she knew that the wolf's eyes and ears and teeth were too big. She knew, right? Right. But she didn't put the basket down and run out of the cottage. No, she took a step closer and a step closer and a step closer until the wolf ate her. And so I always like to think about well, why didn't she leave? Why did Mm -hmm. she keep taking a step closer? And it could have been any number of reasons. She didn't want to be disrespectful. She doubted herself. You know, the wolf said it was the granny, said it was fine, so she should defer. She didn't want to be too know-it-all-y. She wanted to be nice. The person wasn't feeling well. All of these reasons that I think we as women talk ourselves out of this feeling that is inside of us sometimes that if we stopped and got quiet and paid attention to it, we would say, oh, Something doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And if we felt worthy, I believe 
we would actually stop long enough to say, you know, if this doesn't feel right, I need to listen to that instead of what this other person wants, needs, or feels, or what I need in order for me to feel good. In other words, I don't want to feel guilty. So I'll do this thing that I don't really want to do. So I look at it like in my life, all the relationships that I just go out, you know, I guess I'll, you know, this is what I'm doing. I signed up for, you know, you know, okay, here we go. Not listening to that intuition where I know in my heart, this is not right, you know, get out. But that's, it's the unworthiness that's, that keeps you stuck because you're not worthy more, right? Okay. Got it. Yep. I believe so. And you never could have told me that was the case at the time. You know, at at the time, you know, I was a practicing psychotherapist. I had a thriving practice. I was teaching at the adjunct faculty at the graduate school of social work. I really externally did not look unworthy and and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have liked that title. I would have, no, that's not me, you know? And it, it wasn't until some really hardships that I, that I realized, well, if I'm not unworthy, then why would I be doing these things? Right. Why would I not be putting myself first unless I believed, you know, and, and I women like to hide behind, well, it's the right thing to do. Well, the right thing to do is what's right for you. And I think what really women fail to understand is that when we do what's right for us, we are doing what's right for everyone else. Even if that means that people are temporarily upset with us right. or oh. we don't garner their appreciation or attention in that moment. Mm-hmm. So empowering. And I know everyone who's listening that I'm so close to listen. It is so empowering to know that because when you start to know that your whole entire, everything changes. Oh my gosh. It's everything. Okay. So I want to know, I want people to understand what got you from, oh my gosh, Abby, you are so acting unworthy. You're not listening to your intuition. What was that breaking moment where the light bulb went off? <laughs> All right. Well, the, the breaking moment as I don't know, sometimes it's the case, but as these bone crushing, humiliating moments in my life is when I really seem to wake up. And I, at the time was a practicing psychotherapist and my husband was a addictions counselor who had relapsed on pain medication. And I was about to leave him. And at the time he knew I was leaving him. And so there was one morning where he was particularly out of it and he shoved me and I slapped him and he then called 911. And what I didn't know is that when the police come to your house for a domestic violence call, at least in Colorado, they are mandated to arrest someone. And I did what I did at that time, right? I overfunctioned. I took on more responsibility that was mine. I protected him. I worried about what the neighbors were seeing. I, you know, tried to, uh, you know, make sure my son was going to be okay and that everybody was going to be home. And what happened was that they arrested me. Mm. And I had to spend a night in jail. And so during that night in jail, I, I had this epiphany, and this is really what my book is about, that I came to see all the times that I had betrayed myself leading up to that moment, which included marrying someone I, I didn't really love. And I had this come to Jesus moment where I realized that the reason I had broken my own laws so much that I always focused on, on everyone else what they wanted and needed and thought was because I believed at this unconscious level that I was unworthy, that I was unlovable. It came to me as a voice, like literally on the floor of a jail cell. I was asking myself, how could I have married someone I I wasn't really that into? How did I forget all of these things that were actually thoughts on my very wedding day? And then this voice came to me and it said, well, who else was going to love you? 
And I just sat up in my cot and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's what's happening. And I saw all the places where I had betrayed myself at every turn. And in this case, not only did I end up betraying myself and my ex-husband for that matter, who didn't need to marry someone who wasn't in love with him, but my son in that moment, he had to spend the night with my husband who was on drugs. So it was really the, the epitome of betraying yourself and betraying everyone around you. And it was serious. And I had to really, I had to really look at myself really hard and say, you know what, all this thing that I think I'm doing is right. I'm being the good girl. I'm being thoughtful. I'm being selfless. I'm deferring, deferring, deferring all over the place, over-functioning. Those are breaking my own laws. I went to jail because I broke my own laws. Right. That's why that happened. And it took you to go to jail to have this. Yes, the law, the police yes. had to intervene for me to stop doing what was bad for me. Wow. I had to have the police arrest me to wake me up to this is not right. You're Man. not behaving right. Okay, so you get out of jail, you go home and you have this new epiphany. <laughs> and now what? You're on a mission to get out of there? Yeah, so I was already scheduled to leave him. Uh, in fact, I was going to leave him the following day. So I went home and I, and I moved out and I brought my son. I had a place to move to. And, and really from things, things from there really got worse and worse. And I, I became to see how in denial I had been of his addiction and how I had been deferring and questioning myself. You know, throughout this whole marriage, it was like, well, I think you're on too many meds. No, I'm not on too many meds. There's, you know, you're hysterical. You're, you know, all the things that go along with an addictive marriage. And because I grew up in the way that I grew up and doubting myself as women just generally do. And I, I realized I didn't need to argue all these years about this. I didn't need his agreement that his mm-hmm. behavior was bizarre or whatnot. All I needed to do was plug into my intuition and just say, you know what? Maybe you're right. I don't know, but it's not working for me. Right. It's not working for me. And so I have to do what's right for me. And instead, what would happen is I went on what I call like the anger shame cycle that so many of us go through when we're living with addicts, which is, you know, we get so angry at what's happening. And then we, that anger almost always is followed by a shame cycle because when we're that angry, we behave poorly. Right. And then all of a sudden we feel so ashamed of our own behavior that we forget what caused us to be angry in the first place. Right. And all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe I was crazy. Maybe I am just reacting to my childhood. Maybe, 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 you know. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I call it a cycle. I call it a cycle. Cause yeah. I've gone now, gosh, you're, you're so much like you're clearing my, what I went through now. I'm like, oh my gosh, Ashley, I have all, I've ha- been having light bulb moments the last 10 minutes, but I used to call it a cycle. So I would do the same thing. Any kind of relationship. I'd be like, oh, you know, you're, I would be torn down, right? Torn down, torn down. I'd be like, okay, okay. And then you'd go, and then he'd say something or, you know, oh, maybe better. Then you go, okay, oh, better. I'm better. I'm better. And then it'd go shoot, shoot, shoot. Right. And then it would be where you'd start going, oh, maybe I am wrong. And I'd start questioning myself. And then all of a sudden I'm doing this cycle. Exactly. I call it the anger shame cycle. And this feeds into like one of my favorite topics, which is the reason that we get on that, that we stay on that cycle is also because we have a very screwed up idea of what self-care is. Mm. And so what makes that worse is that then we do what everybody tells us is self-care. We go and get the bubble bath and we get the massage and we have a glass of wine with the girls and we think, okay, I am good. I've done everything. I took, I was very selfish. I took all this time for myself. And now I should be okay. 
Right. And you go home and you lose your mind again as soon as he's on drugs or the kids are up too late or whatever it is. It's the dishes are in the sink, whatever it is. Right. And then you get to beat yourself up because you spent all this money and took all this time and you're still a bitch. Right. Totally. Right. And so and the problem is that self-care has nothing to do with those things. Self-care actually has to do with saying no when you need to say no. Self-care has to do with listening to your intuition, saying this isn't working for me. Self-care has to do with risking someone being upset with you or not appreciating you or not liking you because you had to do what you needed to do for yourself. I just had, yes, going where I am in my life right now, great marriage. You know, I didn't get married till I was 36, you know, had children later in life, but you know, I've done all the work ahead of time to like prepare my life to get to the, to know the right guy. You know, I did the, you know, did I tell the girls all the time, you don't know who you are in your twenties. Let's, you know, you got to do a lot of stuff. You got to search and search and learn and grow. And, you know, the same person you maybe think you are is completely different and with a three in the front of it. Right. So I always say when you get to that place where you like, ah, I got it. You know, where you get that feeling of, I am listening to my intuition. I know I'm worth that. I want to do that. That's what I'm trying to do with my girls. Because oh, so, I want to save that, right? So That's where my, oh, yeah. so, that is so, such I mean, a passion because so of that. So fantastic. And it's so important. And I, you know, I have a son in high school, just getting out of high school, but I see, you know, girls that just, they don't have that even now. Mm. They don't have that sense. And it's so important. I didn't have that till after I left my husband and it was the very, and I always say that I, I created him. I, I literally, I brought him to me and I didn't know I was doing it at the time. I didn't know then what I know now, but what I was doing was I couldn't sleep at night. And, and it's funny, I, I think I heard one of your guests telling a similar story and I'm like, yep, that's exactly how it happens. I couldn't sleep at night because I was so stressed out. And my ex got much, much worse after that. He devolved into heroin use and he had a very oh, wow. bad accident and he would, had five strokes. And, I mean, it got really real. It was Jerry Springer ugly. So I was a wreck. I was a walking nerve ending. And I had a three-year-old who would get up at four in the morning, like just as I was falling asleep. And I got so bad that I went, you know, to a psychiatrist to try and get something to sleep, but I didn't want to use it. And Mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, I figured out that if I got into bed and I closed my eyes and I just pictured in vivid color the life that I wanted for him and for me. And that included a man. And I knew exactly what that man, who is going to be like, because I knew exactly what I didn't want him to be like, yep. he was gonna, you know, he was going to work for a living. He was going <laughs> to, you know, he had a home. He was very affectionate because my ex wasn't, he parents had came up with parenting ideas with me. He was a uh. partner. He loved to hike. He, all these things. Right. And for the first time in my life, I knew with every cell in my body that I was worthy of that, that that was going to happen, that I had a lot of love to give. And that, you know, unlike my, my brother joked on both of my wedding nights to my husband's sucker. Oh my gosh. Unlike that, I knew that whoever this was, was going to be so lucky to have me. And that's what made me feel so safe and let my body calm down enough that I could fall asleep every night. And so that's why I did it. But 30 days later, my husband showed up. My oh, husband. I love that. So you would lay there, just revel in that feeling. It's the yeah. feeling of what it felt like to be in that relationship. Yeah. To be that worthy and that loved and know, and know, you know, just know that, that I was, that I was worthy of that. Right. 
it wasn't a hope. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't like, oh, I hope this happens. Or maybe it was, it was like, no, damn right. This is going to happen because yes. nobody deserves it. what I've been through. And if nobody deserves what I've been through, that means I don't deserve what I've been through. And if I don't deserve what I've been through, that means I must be worthy. Yes. Oh, I love that. So empowering so much. So you 30 days later, how did you meet him? I met him online, actually. I oh, had, fun. I had three people in one week told me, you should try eHarmony. And, you know, I had been a private practice psychotherapist at the time. And so I had, and at the time that was very taboo, but I had been working with a lot of single women who had been doing that. And so we would work through the stigma and all that kind of stuff. So by the time people said that to me, I was like, oh, all right, I, I've got a three-year-old. I don't, I mean, and there's not a stigma now, but then there was. Right. But at the time I was like, you know, I'm not going to be hanging out at bars. You know, I don't care. I just, right. you know, so that's how we met. Oh, I love that. So then the you, person I met. Oh, oh, I love it. Richard and I met on through It's Just Lunch, but it's where you, you know, you pay the money and you get so many dates. So, and I wasn't going to do the bar thing either. I, you know, I was busy. I was, I had a business and everything, but I already did the same thing. I did the work. I visualized, I, I had a Hallmark card in my thing for five years and he brought me the Hallmark card, exactly oh the same God. one. I read it. I go, oh my gosh, I've been reading this for five years. And here he is. He's my soulmate. Oh my so, God. Along with that, it was like, that was, there was so many like moments of synchronicities and, you know, all those things. But, you know, when you do that work and you feel it and you see it and you know, you deserve it and everyone is worthy of that. And that worthiness that I want so bad for my girls to feel like raising girls, especially just because I, you know, that whole feeling of, you know, being the little girl that needs the, I don't want that. I want this empowerment, you know, the strength. So now with your, this husband you met, you're still married to him. Yeah. Yep. We've been together 15 years. Okay. So you have a son with him as well. I do. I have a 10 year old with him. Yeah. Okay. So now you go to meeting him. You have your son, he's born. And I want to explain that when I was telling you before we hit record, the thing where you bought that coaching program and it was expensive and where you found out your son had something going on. Yeah. Yeah. So my husband and I had, we had bought a, uh, like a coaching program that I was very excited about. It was learning how to speak on stage with a former NFL player and Broadway playwright and actor. And I was so excited and we purchased it, I think in May, but it started in August. And during that time, I had two family members diagnosed with cancer. I had my sister-in-law drop dead suddenly of a heart disease that my husband actually had a diagnosis of. And she died at 54. And my seven-year-old at the time, was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disorder. And this all happened between May and August when I was set to go. And I drug myself. I mean, I spent six weeks in bed just with the phone and a box of tissues and the TV remote. And I was talking to doctors and I just was like, I'm out. Like I am, I'm out. And they're waiting for diagnoses and all this kind of stuff. And, but I drug myself on the plane because it was exorbitantly expensive. And I was excited about it. And we got there. And what happened was, is I was in a room with these really high achieving people, right? We always compare ourselves to others. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who had treated the highest paying actress in America the week before. And there was a guy who had toured with Tony Robbins. And there were people in the financial industry like we were that had, you know, much more money than I thought that we did. And 
all this stuff, right? And I just showed up because, you know, when you have that much tragedy, it it hits you, you know, at like a cellular level. So mm-hmm. even if I were feeling great, you know, I was kind of propped up like a house of cards. <laughs> you know, I just right. was not feeling my best. And I was aware of it. And so every interaction I had, I was aware of that. Oh, that, you know, because there was other coaches there too that were helping him. Oh, she's paying more attention to the other people, the da, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know what? The one thing I know how to do is pay attention to what I'm thinking. So that's what I'm going to do. And so I started to write out all of my thoughts that morning. I wasn't even listening to what he was saying. All I was doing was, oh, redhead in the corner. She's gorgeous. She's got a beautiful body. She's a doctor. She wasn't even a doctor. I like made that up in my head, right? (laughs) He's going to like so-and-so better, all these people, yada, yada. And we had these five-minute talks that we had to give and that he was going to coach us on. And by noon that day, I was really tired of this voice in my head that was saying that I was so much less than everybody else. And it allowed me to pay attention. And so people would get up and they would give their five minute speeches that we've been rehearsing their stories. And my story that I gave was the one of going to jail. So it was very vulnerable. And as I was watching everybody, I thought, Oh God, they're going to just kill it. They're going to make so much of this. They're, they're going to just go out in the world and do so great. Now I'm not because I'm broken. And by the time this is over, I'm just going to crawl back into my bed. I, you know, but you know, they're going to do great. And the next day came and it was time for me to do my five minute thing. And I, and I gave my thing and it ended with, you know, that I was unlovable, that I believed I was unlovable. And this coach sat back in his chair and he goes, huh. And he's looked around the room and he said, now would any of you think that Abby was going to say that? Like that, that this happened to her and that she thought she was unlovable. And I looked around the room at everybody's eyes and they all were like nodding. No, you know, they didn't. And in Mm -hmm. this, in this really, this moment that I'm always like this, you know, kind of moment. Right. I suddenly like was catapulted into their bodies and I saw myself through their eyes, the way that they saw me, which was exactly the way that I had seen them, which is, wow, Mm -hmm. this woman's amazing. She's going to go out there and kill it. Right. And in that moment, I realized, good God, you know, if I can't get beyond myself, if I can't get out of this place, how am I going to tell my seven-year-old that he's got to keep going? He's got a lot to give this world and he's got far more mountains to climb than I do potentially, you know? So if I can't do this, who am I to say, you've got to pick yourself up every day and keep moving. Right. So you're, he's 18 now. No, no, he's 10. Oh, my so the little one. Yeah. Okay, got he's it. Mm-hmm. So he's the one that got diagnosed. He got diagnosed with something called Charcot's Marie Tooth, which no one knows what it is, but it's actually more common than MS. Uh, oh, wow. 500 people have it. Yeah. And he got diagnosed young. He has CMT2 is what's 2A is what it's called. It's a genetic, you know, but it's, it's he was... I was pregnant with him during a time that my ex was, I was finding out he was in hair, had heroin, finding out about my husband's heart diagnosis. You know, I had to go back for full custody for the older one. You know, I mean, there was a lot of stress during that pregnancy. So even though it's genetic, neither my husband or I have it. It was just like spontaneous in him. Oh, got it. Okay. So, and then you started going down, trying to research, like getting into neuroscience. That's what I love to learn about you. Cause I love that. I always listen to Dr. Joe Dispenza. I read all his books and I have gotten so into learning just how much our mind 
can do. You know, it's always, I was raised with my mom's side of the family, mind over matter. Everything was, you know, mind over matter. We never said, I raised the girls that way. You know, we don't talk anyway. We always talk with health and, you know, we might not feel good, but we talk about the, what does feel good. It's a very high vibe, you know, house where we don't say, you know, it's just, we just, if we do, we're like, mom, you're in trouble, (laughs) you know, So tell me how, so you just started, so seeing this, having your child be diagnosed with something so rare or not rare, but something that you weren't expecting and something I've never heard of, but to, and then what, as a mom, like, where do you go? Yeah. So, I mean, thank God that around that time is when I really started learning about neuroscience and started doing all that stuff. I I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, because there is no way that my husband and I would be walking through what we're walking through now in the way that we're walking through it without the knowledge that I learned. There is just absolutely no way. And, you know, I share often with people that people will say to me like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. And this is so awful. And, you know, and I don't feel that way. Right. Like, right. Because I have a different belief system around it. So I just coincidentally, the timing came on, you know, not long after Jaden was diagnosed, you know, when he was first diagnosed, I just went into that where I would have gone, you know, which is just like I said, in bed, and oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. And my mind went to is he going to be able to drive? Is he gonna be in a wheelchair? You know, all all these things, right? And, um, and then I really learned um, so much more that your and this is some of what I've learned from Dr. Joe Dispenza, as you've talked about, and it's in his books and whatnot, but that your personality creates your personal reality mm-hmm. and your personality is made up of how you think and how you act and how you feel. So if I want to think those things, then I'm going to act a certain way. I'm going to get in bed and I'm not going to get out, you know, right. and then I'm going to feel really hopeless and I'm going to feel self-pitying and I'm going to feel like a victim and I'm going to, you know, and then so is my son. Right. Yep. But if I want to change that thought to something like, you know, I pick different thoughts, but you know, my thought now around this is, look, I don't know why this happened. I don't know why his soul chose to come down here and, and what lesson he was trying to learn, what contract he signed before he flew down to earth about what he wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I signed before I came down here about what I need to learn and why this happened, you know, but it is what it is. And so I believe that we determine those things before mm-hmm. we get here. Right. And so then that flips it on its head. Then how, if I think that, then how am I going to act? I'm going to act like more curious than anything. Right. right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to be up and out of bed and I'm going to feel more hope and more resolved and more at peace with whatever is. Right. And you know, what it causes me to be able to do is be able to see really so much of, of the beauty in my son. You know, he's got these, he's an amazing artist. He's a really creative kid. He's really, all these things like your kids are lucky you did this from the beginning, but my oldest, you know, my 18 year old, I didn't do this from the beginning. I was still walking around in shame and unworthiness. Oh, don't say that. And don't do that. And, you know, don't make us look this way. And, you know, and all this stuff. So Mm -hmm. he's having to learn all this stuff along with me. Right. But the younger one, it allows me to, when I watch him walk across a room, you know, not just get into huge fear and terror and walk with your feet straight and, you know, and and all that stuff, you know, that, that we do when we're in fight or flight. Right. So with the, when you learn the, the personality 
I love that because it is that. And when you change the, just the thoughts alone, you can change your whole reality. You know, it's like, I always teach like whatever thoughts you think, whatever words you speak, there you go. You know, here you are, but explain to, because when I did your master class a month ago or so, I was so, it was so interesting kind of go a little bit there because I was interested in the stress when you have that stress, the hormones, the chemicals that attack your adrenal glands. I mean, we don't need to go too sciencey, but you didn't because I loved it and I understood it. But um, will you explain that part and what your, what's your drive even to have that teach that? Right. Well, so first, you know, it's, it's nothing that I've written or that I, you know, created myself. This is just the science behind, you know, how we work in our bodies. And so are you referring to how we get addicted to our emotions? Yes. Okay. So what happens, and I was just talking to a client earlier about this today, but what happens is that when you have a thought, it's a neuron firing. And what happens when, once that neuron fires, it sends a message down to your limbic brain and your limbic brain is responsible. It's called, it's also known as your emotional brain, your chemical brain. And it sends a corresponding chemical down into your body. So now you're feeling the way that you're thinking. And we get in what's called a thinking and feeling feedback loop. And, you know, this is stuff I've learned from Dr. Joe's books and other places as well. A lot of people talk about it. And what happens, for example, let's say you're angry. That chemical goes down into your body, anger, it hits your adrenal glands. And your adrenal glands put a burst of energy into your body. And our bodies get addicted to that burst of adrenaline. And people say, well, I don't, I had clients say to me all the time, I don't want to feel judgmental. I don't want to feel critical. I don't want, no, I'm not addicted to that. I don't want to feel that way. Well, yeah, I understand. We don't want to, but our bodies get addicted to feeling that way. And so when that happens, then we get addicted to the things and people and places that cause us to feel that emotion. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, like, you know, I've heard Dr. Joe say that, you know, what will happen is like, you might get out of a situation where someone, maybe you quit a job because your boss is irritating you. But before you know it, you find someone else in your life to be really irritating. And people, I always, people always say, even when I was doing couples therapy and stuff, people would say, but I didn't, I saw him from across the bar. I didn't know that he was an asshole. (laughs) You know, like I didn't know he was a narcissist. I didn't. And I'd say, yeah, but you were, you had that energetic thing going. You are looking for that. You're trying to, your body is addicted to the feeling that these kinds of people bring in your life. And so you drew that person to you, right? Just like when I finally became worthy, I started, I drew someone to me that was different. Right. Oh, I love that. So strong that, you know, when I think of how just even as a child growing up, like all the kids that have these dads that, you know, you just don't know, did you have a childhood that was strong? Did you have a mom that was worthy? Did you have the role models in your life? Yes. No, no. My mom was very strong in terms of she never went to college and she ended up building herself up to being the president of a company with a board of directors of white British men. Like she really was very successful externally, but she did not feel that way internally. And she would tell you that herself. Like she had no no self-worth hmm. at all. Yeah. And so, your dad was a strong figure in your life too? Uh, my dad, my dad's just a strong figure in general. <laughs> He's just, but he, he marched to his own tune. My dad suffered with alcoholism for my whole childhood. He quit when I was 23, but it was a very dysfunctional relationship. They divorced when I was seven. And, you know, I learned a lot of tremendous lessons from both of them 
really a lot, but I wouldn't say that self-worth was one of them. Hmm. And do you think your being around your an addi- your father who was um, addicted, the personality, was that what kind of drew you to your husband, your first, your ex-husband? Um, possibly. Yeah, possibly. You know, I had this real idea that I just wanted to do everything differently. I just wanted to, I wanted to show them, you know, that I wasn't going to do this to my kids. You know, I was going to do it all right you know, and that's really what got me in more trouble than anything else, because I became really unconscious to what I was doing. And I became more obsessed with what it looked like was happening, as opposed to what was really happening. So there was a lot of anxiety when my family would come visit, because I wanted everything to look just right. And really, everything is kind of falling apart. And I wasn't able to acknowledge that. So I don't know that that's what drew me. I think maybe it was just more the emotional unavailability in general. I was just drawn to that. I always, I was always drawn to that because I used to think that if my dad loved me, he would stop drinking. Hmm. I remember saying that to him and, and he didn't. And so I stopped talking to him for like a year and a half. And I didn't understand until so many years later that it had nothing to do with how much he loved me. It's a disease, you know, like it's completely separate, right? Right. But I didn't understand that, but I was still operating on that principle. So to me, when I went out looking for men in the world, it was, if I can get that one to love me, then I'm worthy. Because I didn't feel that in myself. So I chose these guys who were really emotionally unavailable in one way or another Mm -hmm. and said, if now, if I can close that deal, well, then I'm lovable. It's like the exact opposite thing you want your girls to know. You know, it's the opposite way of going out into the world. It had nothing to do with anything other than trying to feel worthy. It's such a bad way to look for a husband. Such a bad way. And I know that. And I know I was that way too. I mean, I had, I was telling you the first 10 minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, the first, whatever, when I'm 20 to 30, years old, you know, those days where you're like, oh my gosh, Ashley, you know, that's probably why I have have such a drive for this, for my kids, you know, that I want that for them so bad. So when you were on Ellie's podcast and I was listening to you and there was parents that called in about like the cell phones and, you know, like I want to kind of go on your idea of parenting and because you gave such great advice and I'm such a big, obviously proponent of teaching children and parenting correctly. What are your like top, you know, parenting tips that you would give? Wow. As much as I try and as much as I I want to be that great parent, I don't know that I achieve those heights all the time. I have got a lot of great ideas, but I think it would be silly to say that in practice, it's not so much harder than it is in philosophy. And I, I say that because I really think that so many women beat themselves up about the way that they parent. And there's things that they don't want anybody to know. You know, we don't want people to know that we just lost our mind, you know, and right. screaming our kid for 20 minutes, right? Like we don't want anybody to know that. But what everybody needs to know is that we're all doing that. It's right. like, because right. we're human, right? right. And, and, and it doesn't mean that that we can't correct it and we don't go back and, you know, try and do it differently, but we all do it. And particularly people that, that are just in the thick of it and just, you know, they're just, they're working and they're raising kids and they're doing all this stuff and they don't have time to think about, you know, the right way to do something or whatever. They're doing it over and over again. And then they're hating themselves. And so I guess I just want to say that because it's just so important to know that, you know, we're all human. We're all struggle with this stuff. And I think one of the the biggest things that I've learned, particularly with just learning all this stuff about neuroscience and stuff is that, you know, with my oldest, I was always very 
rigid around schoolwork and you have to do this and you have to do that. And, you know, all this stuff. I remember sending him to school when he was really sick, you know, at like five years old at kindergarten. And I remember the teacher saying to me, you know, you could, you could keep him home, you know? <laughs> and I was like, really? I just wanted to, you know, I didn't know, you know, like, you know, and now it's like half the time if my 10 year old doesn't want to go to school, I mean, I don't let him just not go to school for the hell of it, but it's kind of like, all right, you know, if you want to sit and draw all day and, you know, really like letting them, letting them lead who they want to be. And the, the difference has been so profound. You know, my older one wouldn't go anywhere without a friend. He wouldn't go to overnight camp without a friend. He wouldn't do a program without a friend. My younger one. So I, if I wanted to do something, I had to just find a friend who would do it. Oh, you know, even a bar mitzvah, I had to find a friend who would do it. You know, my younger one is like, he doesn't care if anybody's there. He's like, are there going to be horses? All right, I'll do it. You know, are there oh. going to be, is it, you know, this, I'll do it. You know, it's, it's all based on sort of much more of an internal sense of what he, what he wants. You know, I would say the other thing that I think we've had is a huge challenge. And I personally feel like my generation, which is your generation, has had the hardest time with electronics because they came out when our kids were coming of age at the same time. And we really didn't have any idea what the consequences would be of that. Right. So one of the things that was really important to me, and I think I might have shared this on Ellie's too, is that when my older one would like get on video games and I would get really, really worked up about it because it would scare me. I felt like, my God, you know, is he ever going to get out of there and do anything? You know, right. I would go back to my own childhood of, you know, addiction and all this kind of stuff. And I'd be like, he's going to be in a box under a bridge and I'd get myself all worked up. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then that caused me to be like, I would just run down to the basement, like, get out those things, you know? And then I would set impulsive boundaries around it. You're that's it. It's done. You know? And then he would eventually talk me out of it because of course I had overreacted. And so I would doubt myself. And so before I knew it, we would come up with another plan and that plan would turn into a slippery slope. And within a week we were right back to where we started and I would be enraged and I would, it would happen all over again. It was just like the cycle. Yep. And so one of the most important things that I, that I really learned was once again, it goes back to that intuition. Like I have, why, why don't I want my son to do this? What is most important about that to me and getting really honest about my motives? Because if it's external, if I said to him, well, you know, it's not good for you. Then he would say, it's great for me. My coach said it gives me hand-eye coordination. And all oh, you're the only parent that says this. <laughs> and then I would doubt myself, right? And be like, right. you know, <laughs> but if I came from a place of like, you know why? It's because I feel like a crappy mom if I allow this. It's a fundamental value for me. And I don't want to feel like a crappy mom. That's a law. That's a personal law that has to go with my intuition. It comes from here. It doesn't mm-hmm. come from what my mother's going to think if she finds out how much video games my son plays. It doesn't come from you know what other parents think or anything else or, or who he may turn out to be as a result it comes from who, how I, what I need. Right. And so when I laid the law down that way and said, look, you know, these are the rules. And well, those are ridiculous. And I you're the only mom, you know, I'm like, well, I didn't buy into all that. Cause it was like, well, you may be right. I don't know. You may be right. But unfortunately for you, I have to do this for me. And I have a right to do that for me because I need to do what's going to keep me in a good, emotionally sound place. So really my biggest thing that I love to talk about parenting and about anything really, and I wrote a blog called this, is the only emergency is your serenity. It's really the only emergency. 
So if you, if you can get yourself to a place of calm and you know what are the things when you are even, because we all, I mean, there's a saying, right? If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. There's a mm-hmm. reason there that that's true, right? right? <laughs> so yeah, very. So we have to really be, get close to what it is that our needs are. And when we are functioning from that place, the answers come. We know how to parent when that comes. We know what's right and what's wrong for our kids in that moment. Does that right. make sense? Totally. But when you say calm... Because I had a conversation with my friend the other day. She's like, Ashley, oh, you can stay calm. I just go in these rages. And why do I get so mad? And I get these triggers and they have their, I take their phones away and I go all the, you know, the whole thing, just like we just talked about. And I said, well, I feel like, I mean, of course I've done that. I'm not saying, (laughs) believe me, there's many things I want to erase but it, we are human. Right. And yes, the phone thing is just something that just has, I just don't like it. And I think it's the same thing. And I, I look at it like it's a takeaway, you know, we're going to take it away. We're going to, Oh, did that? Oh, here's your phone. You know, it's always the phone, the phone. Right. Like when, when I was a kid, what was it? Oh, go outside, come back at dinner. I don't know. You know, <laughs> like what was our punishment? Go sit in the room. We didn't have a phone, like stare at the right. wall. You know, so you just, it's like this punishment thing. And I feel like, oh, it's, it gets so old, you know, and I, but it is this calmness that I realize that I've learned because I've practiced it. It's, I always say, you know, you got to do it till it's like a muscle, right? Like you just, it's as a mom, you're like, okay, that I'm just going to take the phone. It's not necessary. That's probably not working well. And, and then Kelly's like, how do you do that? I just get so mad. But I just feel like over time, if you are conscious and have the awareness that what I'm doing is not wor- serving me <laughs> right. or you, it's just not working. Right? right. And I'm teaching them that. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're teaching them such an important lesson, right? Because it's not this, you know, we get focused on, you know, certain things. And it's like, oh, the phone is what's causing this problem. Right. And then we teach them to like get really dialed down on this one thing. And really what you're teaching them is how to behave emotionally, which is so important. And they'll get upset, but then they see you and it doesn't happen right away, unfortunately, but they, they can't, they have nothing to argue with you about because your behavior is in check. Exactly. And it's just like what you said around practicing, right? Because and that's what neuroscience teaches us. It's not, you know, people will say, well, I'm insecure or I, I'm a rageaholic or whatever. No, no, you've just practiced being that. That's mm-hmm. what you've practiced. You've practiced being insecure. You've practiced being a rageaholic. So just practice something different. Practice being calm. We can't, we can have a thought like, I want to do this differently, but it doesn't become a habit until we put it into practice. Right. You know, the thought doesn't mean anything until you actually change your behavior and things change when you change your behavior. So what I advise people to do is, you know, that's your priority, right? Like if the kid is on the phone for an hour longer, because you had to go do something to get yourself, you had to go meditate or get yourself in an emotional position to be able to deal with this, then that's what has to happen. And that practice, eventually you'll have to do that less and less because as you probably experienced, you don't get as angry, right? Right. After a while you, it takes five minutes. You know, or after a while, you just doesn't take any time at all. It's like, hey, I need the phone. You've been on it too much. What was your story before I go on? But what was, because we're talking about phones, your story when I, you had a terrible story when you went to the school and listened to a a speaker. Oh, yeah. Well, right. So I went to the school to participate in an assembly for internet safety. 
And I didn't really know exactly what it was going to be about, but it turned out that it was about sexting. And there was a task force uh, in the county here because sexting at the time, I'm sure they probably fixed this by now, but at the time, a minor sending a picture of herself or a boy sharing a picture of a minor sharing a, a naked picture of herself is a class three felony. And so these kids were at risk of having class three felonies on their record, which don't go away. So they're sex offenders their whole life. Oh, wow. So this task, this task force was formed to try and avoid this from happening. Because if they just went by the letter of the law, you know, you'd have 12 year olds that were sex offenders and they would wow. never lose that. But they told some really profound stories and uh, about particularly these two that I, that I remembered about um, this one girl who had a boyfriend and, and she had sexed him some pictures and they broke up and he posted them. And the police determined that those pictures were probably reposted some 750,000 times. Oh my God. And she went on to have, I think she graduated summa cum laude. She went to a really great college, but she never got a job because every time they Googled her, they found these pictures. And then the, the more tragic story was of this girl whose boyfriend, they had a mutual friend who was also a boy, and they tricked her into engaging in sexual activity with him while the other one videotaped it on graduation day. They put it up, and when she went home, you know, when she went back to school that day, they had gone out to lunch. And when she went back to school that day, she got a standing ovation in the cafeteria, but she didn't know why. And when she went home that night, she picked up her graduation gown from the dry cleaner. She went home that night. She saw what had happened. And instead of going to graduation, she took her life. Ugh. And when I heard that, and then, then the, the kicker was, he said, you know, when I interview these kids, I always ask them the same question. I asked the boys, why did you do this? Why did you pressure her into sending a picture of you? And he said, you know, they always say the same thing. They say, because I want to see a picture of her. And then they ask the girls, well, why did you do this? Why did you give in? Why did you succumb? And the girls always say the same thing. And before he said it, I knew exactly what he was going to say. They say, because I wanted him to love me. Oh. That was in 2016. Oh now, my, my gosh, it was? That was in 2016. And what happened to me in jail when I realized that I had married because I felt unworthy and all of that stuff that happened in 2006, it was 10 years later. But when I sat in that auditorium, I was like, I got to write this book. Because this huh. is still happening. No kidding. How can this still be happening? I was born in 1970. These girls were born in 2003. Oh. How can this still be happening? Oh, that makes me sick. That's more power from what the point I need to get in this world to these kids. Right. Oh, and I see this these videos that my daughter, sh I'm like, do these kids know? Like social media, you know, it's so new to us. So, you know, it's just like you said, it's just like it came out, that Paige was born. I didn't have a cell phone to take a picture of her in the hospital. You know, she's like, where's my pictures? When, right. You know, I'm like, we didn't have those, you know, she just turned 15 yesterday. And I, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, the social media thing and all the pressure. And I think, you know, these pictures that go out there, the Snapchats that they think aren't, oh. aren't, I mean, I just gets into my skin. I think, do you, and I, I mean, of course my kids know that, but when I see the other kids and I'm like, okay, I just want to go over to you and say, do you realize what you have at stake? You yeah. have your, you have high school years, freshman, you have three years left now. Do you, right. you want to be on the varsity, whatever? Do you want to play this sport? Do you want to go to this college? We're now planning you you could ruin the whole thing. You could right. put it all to bed. And I tell my older son too. I mean, I've always done that since he was in high school, you know, cause I don't have girls, even though I really feel so strongly about this, but I always tell him, you know, look, you don't know what the motivation is. And I'm telling you, 
that a lot of these girls will do whatever you want them to do because they want you to love them. And mm. that's just the sad truth. So you need to think very carefully before you make decisions or moves or, or anything. And you need to think about what your motives are because they might not be aligned. Right. Oh, I just and I, think going there. I, I really think that's how so much date rape happens and all this kind of stuff is that women and girls are looking for something that was never promised to begin with. That was never, it's all based on their own unworthiness. And they take those steps toward the wolf, just like little red yep. riding did. I know that was my me too story is the same exact thing, you know, just wanting to be loved. Mm-hmm. And we could not to say that, that it doesn't excuse the behavior of men and boys, but it does say that we could, could have prevented it ourselves. Right. We didn't need to be a victim. Mm-mm. Oh, so, so true. As we get to the end, I want to, before we say goodbye, you know, I was on your website and I, you have the videos, the four series that I, and I'm only on two because they come every other, you know, they come once a day. So we go through those because I really thought that was interesting too, because I just got my second one, but I listened to the first one. We just go through those before we kind of close here. Geez, if I can remember what they were, they, now there was a set of four videos that- Serenity is an emergency. Serenity- I'll tell you because I wrote them. Okay. So (laughs) serenity is the only emergency. So that's what I talked about before. So these were my four steps to bust burnout, basically, because women get very burned out by being everything to everyone. And so the first step was, these are just five minute videos that are free on my website. And the first one is serenity is the only emergency. And that's what I spoke about before. Like you may think that the dishes in the sink or the husband not getting the kids to bed or the thing that you just screwed up at work or the person who threw you under the bus You may think that all of those are the emergency. That's not the emergency. The emergency is your emotional state. Because when we are not coherent in our heart and in our brain, we are not able to make coherent decisions. We can only think equal to the emotion that we're feeling. Mm -hmm. So think about that. that. You can only think equal to the emotion that we're feeling. If you can only think equal to the emotion you're feeling, you are at serious risk for saying things you don't want to say, for doing things. And we all know when you send that email that you never should have sent, right? And you're like, oh my God, then you're up all night anxious. What are they going to say back? And you're, you know, you get to your computer the next day and you're like, oh, <laughs> right. You know, like, right? Right? like <laughs> the serenity is the only emergency. That's, that's the first lesson of those. And the second one is toxic voice. Oh yeah. So the toxic voice is that voice in your head, you know, that's always telling you that you're stupid or fat or lazy or you're not good enough or all that kind of stuff. And that is what we really, really have to get a hold of. That toxic voice thrives on your unworthiness. It loves your unworthiness. I have a whole lesson I teach about net worth, self-worth, and real worth because net worth and self-worth both fluctuate. Like a net worth fluctuates, right? If the market's up and down, right. well, self-worth is really no different because our self-worth is based on, are we pretty? Are we funny? Are we smart? Are we da, da, da? And if we don't feel those ways in those in that day, because our toxic voice has been, you know, just ragging on us, then all of a sudden we might have no self-worth. But the truth is you always have your real worth. You're worthy no matter what. It doesn't matter what you did or said. You're a human being. You're a child right. of God. You yes. have worth. I love that. And then the third one, know your motives. So your motives is what I mentioned before. Like if you're going to, you know, I have a client who, you know, sent me an email once that she was going to send to all these people, you know, well, why are you sending that? Well, because I want them to know my side of the story and I want them to know what happened. Well, the motive there turned out to be she wanted validation. 
So when you send an email, for example, or you talk to your mother who'd never validated you before and you expect validation, then you put yourself at risk when your goal is validation or appreciation or something like that because you don't know what someone's going to come back with. So the motive that you're doing something with has to be clean. It can't be that you want validation or you want appreciation. And you have to get really honest with yourself about that. Because sometimes women are like, oh, no, this is fine. I really want to do this. Then we do it and we're resentful because someone didn't appreciate that we did it. Right. Or we're anxious and insecure because someone didn't validate us. So what's your expectations or expectations? Yeah. Expectations. Yeah. But even like at a dinner party, you know what? Sometimes I ask myself, like, why did I just say that? Well, I said it because I wanted this person to think I'm funny. Uh, that's really not a great motivation. I should right. say something because it adds something to the conversation. Oh, I love that. That's a great awareness. I don't know what number four is. I didn't write that down. I didn't get that far. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I'll yeah, have to wait till um, like three more, two more days and I'll know what four is, but yeah, I just, let's, where can we find you? So give us your. Yeah. So, well, those videos and all about me is on abbyhaverman.com. And then you can always email me at abby at abbyhaverman.com. Perfect. And it'll all be in the show notes. And I am so grateful for this time. You're like my friend. <laughs> Instant <laughs> I know. Friends. Yeah. Oh, I just Your love spirits. it. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. So much. I can't wait to meet you in person one day. I know. Me too. Yeah. I'll come to Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Abby. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.